Welcome to Crawl Space. For today's Seller Series interview, we talked to Elizabeth Yardley, Associate Professor of Criminology at Birmingham City University in Birmingham, UK. She has a new true crime podcast called Crime Bites, and it's fantastic. So if you like this interview and enjoy her wonderful accent, you get to hear much more of it on Crime Bites. So check it out. The link is in the show notes. Last time we chatted it was episode 28 of missing more murray where yourself and david wilson professor david wilson were uh kind enough to 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 join us and and discuss uh criminology and the i remember it to be about 28 pages of uh of 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 wound culture description and really fascinating stuff (laughs) so that that was a long article wasn't it (laughs) But it was so good, and and it's something we talk about often. Well, we we like to bring a, a little bit of criminological theory into everybody's life, <laughs> so <laughs> so we're glad that you've uh, you found wound culture useful. It's it's something that that I see around me all of the time. It's it's quite amazing, really. But I don't think it's anything particularly new. I was having a conversation with somebody the other day, one of my students actually, and we were talking about um, the history of punishment and penal theory, and and. This student was saying, well, everybody's always liked kind of to go to public executions and that kind of thing back in uh, back in the day, you know, before we we developed our um, our prison system a, a little bit uh, more humanely. So I think there's always been that kind of that that feeling of being drawn to like the trauma and the, the suffering of other people and, and that kind of thing as, as entertainment. So so I think what we're seeing at the moment is just the, the contemporary manifestation of it, really. I would never think to say contemporary manifestation. <laughs> Can um... you tell I've, uh, I've been writing an academic article today, so I'm speaking <laughs> a gobbledygook. <laughs> no, it's great. I, I try to, anytime I hear something on a podcast or on a radio program or even in my day-to-day existence that I think I can use in more in future podcasts, I, I try to retain those to memory. So, well, there's uh, nothing wrong with a little bit of recycling. <laughs> no, it, recycling's good. It's, it, recycling's <laughs> great. But we were actually having dinner with Bruce Maitland, Brianna Maitland's father, and there were some of the situations that he had described to us where, I mean, it, it was almost word for word of uh, wound culture affecting him with uh, with the disappearance of his daughter. And just, I'm, we did that interview, you know, about a year ago, a little less than a year ago. And when it finally came up, it's like right within something that we were working on, um, I was just sitting there shaking my head. I, like, I can't even believe how spot on that paper was in that description of wound culture. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think I think often when you speak to uh, victims of crime and, and sort of secondary victims of crime, so, so people whose relatives and friends have been victims, um, I find that people talk a lot about the, the way in which their private pain has, has almost become a kind of product for, for public consumption. And I think it's that, that feeling of, of loss of ownership over that. That, that is something that really affects them. And it's a bit of a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because especially when you have a missing persons case or an unsolved homicide, you want people to know about the case. You want people to be aware of it. But at the same time, you kind of lose a little bit of your control over it too. So it can be quite a, a contentious issue for, for people affected by crime. The alternative is true in a way, I think, after we spoke to Todd Matthews, who 
I guess you could kind of say he's part of the wound culture, um, wound culture, culture, um, because he, he got involved. He, he immersed himself in, he immersed himself in the case of tent girl and hundreds of others now, but it's like he used his power for good and, and figured out a way to channel it. He, he runs the uh, media, uh, division of NamUs. They help identify, unidentified victims on unidentified uh uh human remains uh, to missing human Mm. yeah human remains and and it's something that developed into a career for him and and ultimately like a life-changing uh life-changing career that 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 affects hundreds of people now and more more thousands tens of thousands of people yeah it's something that I find really interesting and, and myself and a couple of colleagues are, are getting ready to do some research around this kind of web sleuthing at the moment. And I think it's a really interesting time to be looking at it as well, because we live in in times of austerity and we're always hearing about cuts to police budget. So so I think there's there's actually room now to start looking at, well, what can everyday citizens, you know, Internet detectives, what role could they potentially play? In, in these cases, because I think there's so much police resource goes into investigating missing persons and, and these types of, of issues that, that actually I think it's time to actually start the conversation around that, isn't it? I think so. I And, and I wonder how law enforcement and web sleuths or groups of pe- people, community of people can work together in a responsible way, because there are so many people out there who want to help, but law enforcement they're always sort of at odds because of what law enforcement can tell the public. And uh, then the public are also uh, walking a, a fine line of interfering with a case. So I feel like there needs to be more communication between the two sides somehow. Mm, and I think there's a bit of a status issue as well um, with the police when you have kind of web sleuths trawling all over a case. Often they, they feel that their their kind of power and their authority is, is compromised a little bit. Um, and we've done a little bit of research into this already. And there have been cases where web sleuths have kind of solved a crime or, or been instrumental in solving a crime. And the police have said, that's fantastic. Well done. We really appreciate it. And then in other cases, they're, they're really reluctant to acknowledge that, that other people have even been involved in it at all. So so I think that's quite a, quite a hurdle there. Perhaps there needs to be some sort of, some sort of conference between amateur sleuths and law enforcement uh where they can talk about where the line is where where do you draw the line before you stop looking into something because you're negatively affecting the case and the police have to have to uh, take over from there the law enforcement has to take over now police law enforcement all of those uh all of those departments they they operate on a budget sometimes their budget just doesn't allow them to do certain things to look at every case they have to very strictly prioritize the cases that they look into so i could see where there are situations and circumstances that would make them feel grateful to have responsible amateur sleuths out there so i just feel like yeah that conversation really should start happening cuz there's there's a lot of really responsible amateur sleuths out there. And I think the conversation kind of started to happen over here a couple of years ago. Um, our current Prime Minister, Theresa May, when she was Home Secretary, she announced some proposals for what she called police support volunteers. 
And basically, this was an idea that professionally qualified people who had um, expertise in things like accounting and computing and that kind of thing would sort of volunteer their time to, to help the police out. So I think that the door is starting to open a little bit. Um, but it's starting to say, OK, well, professionally qualified people come through first and then we'll think about what to do with the rest of you. Right. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting because I feel like some sleuths, some people who look into cases, people that we've come across, they don't understand that they can affect the case or they don't understand that how their actions affect the case until it's too late a lot of times, too. Yeah. So talk to us about your your new podcast. Well, it's an idea that I've had for, for quite some time because I've been a, a kind of true crime podcast addict um, probably ever since Serial. Um, and I, I've been listening to true crime podcasts before then as well. And there's just so many of them out there. And some of our students have, have actually started listening to them as well. And I thought there's, there's a real kind of gap in the market, really, because there's, there's so many cases being discussed, so many ideas kind of uh, pinging around. And I thought... Where are all the criminologists? There are no criminologists out there making a contribution towards these conversations. So I thought it would be uh, quite a, a good idea to have a criminology podcast, essentially. So we'd still cover um, the the, th- the types of things that, that people want to, to hear in true crime podcasts. But we put it into the, the context of, of criminology and we talk about some of the theories and some of the ideas that, that we use in, in our everyday lives as criminologists. So I came up with an idea for the podcast. It was over the Christmas holidays. I was sat around talking to my husband. I said, I've got this idea. Um, I think I'm going to talk myself into doing something about it. Um, so I went and told lots of my colleagues and lots of my friends. And, and you know that once you tell people you're going to do something, you kind of have to <laughs> go through with it. Um, so when we came back to work in, in January, I, I started lining up people for interviews and and we got two episodes out at the moment. So it's uh, it's doing quite well. And we've got the, the third episode dropping on the, the 21st of this month. Excellent. What uh, what is your third episode covering? Uh, well, it's we're using the same kind of three-part format for every episode and they come out every month um so the first part is something that we call crime case study so we take a particular case that's been in the news or a case that we think should have been in the news but wasn't and and delve into the case say well what happened um how do we make sense of it in general how do we make sense of it as criminologists what can we do if we feel particularly passionate about it um, and, and I normally have a chat with a, a couple of, of criminology colleagues um, during that segment. And then the second part is something called researcher profile. So every month I'll talk to a criminologist about their work. Um, so um, I've, I've spoken to Dr. James Treadwell, um, who does lots of really interesting stuff, um, hanging around with some some rather interesting groups of people. I've spoken to Dr. Charlotte Barlow, who looks at women's experiences of, of offending. And then the third part of the podcast is um, this. It's kind of the fun bit. Um, and it's the bit that I've kind of used to sort of indulge my own interests. Um, so it's called Crime Scene on Screen. And we, we look at a particular crime drama or a film or a documentary and we kind of analyse it, essentially. So is it really accurate? Is it true to reality? What do we think about it? How does it kind of help us understand particular types of crime? And the, the reason that I'm so interested in crime drama is because it's something that's quite powerful to use with my students. So 
often some of my students, even though they're criminology students, they find it quite uncomfortable talking about things like homicide and sexual violence and, and that type of stuff. So rather than starting off with real cases with them, I'll often talk about a case that's happened in a film or a case that's happened in a kind of fictional series. And that's a really good place to start exploring some of, of the issues. So I've tried to use quite a lot of what I've learned as a teacher of criminology um, in order to, to make the podcast. And it's uh, it's going really well. So um, I, I'm really pleased. Um, but I'm kind of realising now I kind of have to do it forever. <laughs> I have to put an episode out every month and make time to do that. Um, but but the, the feedback that we've got so far is is brilliant. So we're going to keep doing it for a, a good while. Yeah. Great. Yeah, it's it's a really fascinating podcast. And I think that criminology in general seems to lend itself to podcasting uh, very well. Maybe just because a lot of, I, well, I don't know, actually. You, you tell me what, why you think that is. Well, I think as criminologists, our kind of key aim in life is to to make sense of crime and make sense of society's response to crime and i think true crime podcasts and podcasts about missing people and, and issues connected to that they are a a social response to to crime so so it's all part of of the same picture essentially so so it's it's a really good way of of kind of having conversations about things that we talk about as academics using our kind of academic concepts but but make that for a, a wider audience and kind of introduce a few more people to criminology as well because I think often with academics they tend to be quite kind of inaccessible and quite ivory tower so we write academic books and we publish academic journal articles and the number of people who will read an academic journal article you can probably count on one hand I mean the stuff that I write um, I read it my dad reads it and a couple of people at work read it. <laughs> so it's good to kind of have a, a broader audience and, and podcasting is a great way for us to do that, really. And it's a fascinating aspect to the, the to the true crime, the true mystery genre, because a lot of podcasts out there talk about the folklore of 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 these mysteries without getting into or and and the speculation of of you know the who done it part of it but they, no one until recently and especially with crime bites are, are getting into the 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 mental status the the mindset of of the perpetrator and i think that's i think that's more frightening than anything that's fiction or anything that's folklore yeah, and it, it's about putting it into the broader context as well. It's like what kind of society creates these people that commit these horrendous offences? Because we can't kind of sit back and go, well, they're all born evil, because <laughs> that doesn't really stand up. Um, so we've got to look at um, their, their family backgrounds. Uh, we've got to look at the kind of community that they've grown up in and some of the norms and values that exist in those communities. And then we've got to, to look at, at what's happening in society. So what particular judgments do we make of, of specific groups of people and how might that affect their behaviour? Um, and crime, the, committing crime and committing violent crime, it's always a choice. People always have a choice to commit crime. They always have a choice not to. But that choice is always situated within a social context. So so that's what we're really trying to, to get to. Just the, the fact of taking these stories that are dangerously approaching folklore 
and and pulling them out and talking about all of those circumstances that you just mentioned that what is it a you know where we are at in society and what kind of family life did these people have and the the you know product of their environment on and on it's bringing a human element to it which is is really what the development of these types of podcasts need to the direction they need to be going in yeah we we always find it really interesting to to look at a to really look at a whole range of, of different factors that, that happen around a case, because I think there is a tendency sometimes to just focus solely on the offender, um, often at the expense of, of the victim. Um, I know that um, there's uh, the, the, one of the co-hosts of another podcast that I listen to, a fantastic podcast called Real Crime Profile. One of the, the hosts of that podcast, Laura Richards, always says that victims often become footnotes in the story of their own murder. And that is so true. Um, so, so it's about kind of bringing out the victim story as well as the offenders, but but also placing that in in that broader context and and saying, well, well, what factors actually all came together to to create these awful things that that happened? Can you say that again? What was that about? Uh, victims often become. Say uh, that again? Um, the thing that Laura Laura Richards always says is that victims often become the footnotes in the, the story of their own murder. The footnotes of the, yeah. wow, that's really that, cool. Yeah, I remember the first time I heard I heard that in in real crime profile, I thought that is exactly hitting the nail on the head. That that really is kind of what what all this is about. crime scene on screen segment that you've been doing uh, that I've listened to are uh, really interesting and especially because we're filmmakers and uh, so so your conversation with with David Wilson was especially interesting about his documentary too but um, I think those conversations are are important and they're original to true crime podcasts I'm sure they they're more like movie review um, segments or something like that but the, the conversations are important because those are conversations that the writers of those shows had to have when they were mm. conceiving their shows. You know, it, it's like what what worldview does this detective have or, you know, how how is the town that this murder happened in being portrayed as a character or not? Yeah, we, we really enjoy doing those segments. And I recorded one the other day with my colleague, Dr. Adam Lines, um, who, who's a criminologist who I work with at Birmingham City University. And Adam has, has always been interested in Dexter, the um, the TV series about the, the guy who's a serial killer, but, but also happens to, to work for the police department. Um, and and we covered some, some really interesting stuff in there about... Um, what kinds of victims do we have sympathy for? What kind of offenders do we have sympathy for? What makes somebody into someone who can take the life of someone else? Uh, and it's it's something that that I don't think I'd ever thought about really in in that much detail. I've just kind of watched Dexter on quite a superficial level. Um, but I have found that since I've been doing crime scene on screen, I can't actually sit down and watch a crime trauma without my notebook. I'm a real like geek about it now. <laughs> 
And um, I sat down to watch um, a couple of uh, programmes earlier this week. Um, There's a really good series on BBC One here in the UK called Line of Duty. And it's essentially about police corruption and the investigation of police corruption. And then there was another one called Broadchurch, um, which is produced by ITV. And this series looks at uh, sexual assault. Uh, and my husband said, oh, God, here comes the notebook again. Can you not just put it away and just enjoy the program? <laughs> uh, that, that's funny. I watched uh, Broad Church on Netflix and uh, the female character in that. I, I, I watched it. and I was like, that's that's Liz. That, I know that person. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's an exceptional show. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. The first series was was fabulous. The second one was uh, a little bit disappointing, but I think they've really got their stride back with the third one. And they've been quite ambitious because they've covered a sexual assault and they've covered that over an eight part series. And I think a lot of people were quite kind of disappointed that it wasn't about a grisly murder, because that's what people have come to expect, I think, out of crime drama. Um, right. But they've covered something different and they've done it so well. And, and they've covered so many issues that kind of form the broader context of sexual violence so they've looked at pornography they've looked at revenge porn they've looked at misogyny uh, and they've done it in quite a subtle but a really powerful way and i think what was really good about broadchurch was that it wasn't about um you know fantastic science or charismatic good-looking detectives it was about ordinary everyday life and, and I think that that is the context of, of most crime. You know, it, it is about mundane reality and, and the impact on, on normal people's lives. And I think it's, it's captured that really well. Uh, speaking of uh, normal lives and mysteries that come from from uh, those normal lives, the uh, milk carton kids, that's uh, one of my favorite segments on Crime Bites. Do you want to talk about the milk carton kids for a little bit? Yeah, sure. Uh, this this is a case that I've always been aware of because I actually live in in the area where this happened. Um, it's it's an area just outside Birmingham city centre. Uh, it's the borough of uh, Solihull. And back in um, 1996, two boys went missing. Uh, one was 13 and one was 11. So David Spencer and Patrick Warren were, were their names. And, and they lived um, in a place called Chelmsley Woods, which is within the borough of Solihull. Um, and, and back in the, the mid 90s, it had quite a sort of local reputation. It was a, a council estate. It's an area of social housing. And, and there were quite significant levels of social deprivation there. So a lot of poverty, uh, kind of lower educational sort of qualifications, that sort of thing. So this was quite a sort of stigmatised area. Um, it was a working class council estate. And I think the fact that these two boys went missing from there and they were two young working class lads that had such an impact both on the police response to them going missing and the, the media reporting of it. Um, and they've, they've never been found. Um, and and it's, it's a case that's just passed its, its 20 year anniversary. And it's, it's one that I think really deserved an awful lot more attention than it actually got. Yeah, actually, one of my favorite parts of that. Now, this is episode two, just for the listeners. Uh, episode two of Crime Bites features Patrick Warren and David Spencer, the milk carton kids. I really liked how you and uh, David Wilson tightened the screws on the media and and pointed out that the media did things like portrayed the kids as a lot older than they were, saying that they were kind of 
kind of troublemakers and one of them smoked, um, which may, makes you think that they're delinquents, uh, 16, 17, 18 years old. And and it was said a couple of times they're they're missing they're They were missing then and they're still missing now, but they've always been missing in the headlines. Yeah. Yeah, I think that one of the, the the points that David made was that that actually the way that this this story was reported, it was reported in such a way as to make it forgettable. Um, we didn't get to know very much about the boys from the media reporting of them. And and one of the things that that you always kind of ask when you've got a, a child that's that's missing or, or a child that's become the victim of crime is, well, what was this child interested in? What what kind of person were they? What football team did they support? That type of thing. And we just knew nothing, absolutely nothing about them. So we were unable to to kind of individualize them and to be able to empathize and, and sympathize with them. And because so much was missing um, from you know, their characters, essentially, um, they were only presented to us as these young tearaways. They weren't presented to us as, as boys with hopes and dreams and, and interests and hobbies. Um, so, so that made them disappear, essentially, in, in two ways, both physically and from the, the public consciousness. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And do you think that affected the police investigation in a negative way? Um, I think the police investigation started off um, making quite a lot of assumptions about the boys. And I think it's important for me to emphasize that the kind of the police culture that existed at the time the boys went missing in the local police force, West Midlands Police, was very different to, to how it is now. Um, I mean, we've got quite a, a lot of, of friends and, and people that we know who work for West Midlands Police now. And and now there is, is much more of a, a kind of appreciation that a victim of crime is a victim of crime, you know, no matter what background they come from. But but back then, um, it was very much, oh, well, they'll turn up, they're, they're little tearaways, they're, they're always kind of... Um, going out and staying up late and, and all of that kind of stuff. It was just assumed that that lads from this kind of background can almost sort of look after themselves. But I think if they would have gone missing from, you know, 10 miles up the road in sort of upper middle class suburban Solihull, um, it would have been a very, very different picture. And there's no indication that these boys ran away, right? There was, uh, they found his bike. Did they, they found his bike? By a gas yeah, station. they yeah. they found um, that there was a red mountain bike um, that, that Patrick had had for, for Christmas that year. Um, and, and they went missing, essentially, around Boxing Day. And, and they found the bike at the back of a, a local petrol station. So I, I don't think that, that there was really any kind of plan for them to, to run away. I mean, they were 11 and, and 13. And when I heard them described as runaways in, in the local and the national press, I was just thinking, oh, my goodness, really? Is that really the label that we're going to attach to these these boys? It was uh, it was really, really shocking. So there's this idea that they, they they'd run away. And, and by labeling them in that way, we kind of um, we get rid of the, the idea that they were taken away, that somebody else was involved in it. 
Um, so, so it really did, I think, sort of direct the investigation in one particular direction. And there have been no leads, any leads about these uh, these missing boys? Well, it's there have been a few leads over the years. Um, so the most kind of significant one was uh, back in 2001. So this was about five years after they went missing. Um, that there was a, a local man who, who lived in Solihull who was convicted of a, a murder that happened in, in 1968. Um, now, this was this was quite important because he was living in the area from from which the boys went missing and he'd previously been convicted of an offence where he'd he'd kidnapped essentially two two boys and that's quite a unique uh, modus operandi to to take two youngsters at once is something that is relatively unusual so so that was something that that really did kind of um get the police thinking and investigating him as a potential suspect but he's he's never admitted to, to any involvement in it and it, it really it really did sort of go quite cold from from there um but but the police the the senior investigating officer who's is leading the investigation at the moment is is saying actually this case is never going to close we're, we're always going to listen to people who've got information and that's often what happens in cases like this it's not kind of fancy forensic science that that leads to a breakthrough. It's it's about people's relationships with each other. So somebody knew something back then, and people's loyalties change over the years. Um, the, the the sense of of kind of commitment to particular people and 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 kind of covering up for particular people that can be something that kind of dissipates over the years as people move on and their relationships break down. So I think with the passage of time. It's more likely that 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 will lead to a breakthrough rather than anything else. And the social aspect of it, uh, with him, with the boys coming from a working class background, is is directly uh, the what I'm getting at is the 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 rape and murder of uh, Nicola Nicola Dixon, 17 years old. She was from a middle class uh, neighborhood. Um, she was raped and murdered a couple of days after the boys went missing, and the police said that that pretty much took all of their resources. Um, I mean, you have a you have a direct you have a direct result of that class distinction right there. Yeah, absolutely. I think when when you look at the the different social class backgrounds of, of victims of crime, um, often um, those who come from families who who are of that middle class background. Um, their families are often more kind of proactive in lobbying the police to, to do something about being on the phone to them every day, about articulating their case in a, in a particular way. Um, and also you can find with, with some working class communities that there is a bit of kind of um, a suspicion, a bit of a, an antagonistic relationship sometimes with, with the police, especially if the police have been particularly heavy handed in, in that local area. So there's lots of factors that, that come together to, to have a, an impact on that. And also the, the media plays into it as well. I mean, nice looking middle class young women are so much more newsworthy than than young boys from a working class council estate it's yeah. got this idea we've got this idea of the ideal victim so when people 
become the victims of crime. There are some people who we are much more more quick to say it wasn't their fault. They're completely blameless. We're really sympathetic towards them. And then there are others who we say, well, yeah, it's kind of their fault that they became the victims of crime. They sort of brought about their own victimization. So so we have much less sympathy for them. I just wanted to talk a little more about the person of interest here, Brian Fields. Mm. Um, he remains the only person in British criminal history to have been convicted of such a crime where one man was able to kidnap two people. And I, I, it makes sense why you say that's rare, because it makes you wonder how the heck it could have happened once, let alone twice. Exactly. It's it's one of those cases where you think, what on earth are the chances of, of that happening and it not being Brian Fields? Um and, and you you got to admit it's it's a really rare form of of offending. It's a, it's a really rare modus operandi. So I'm not surprised that the police spent quite a, a lot of of time on this. Um, but but then again, you think well, here is a case of a man who's actually been caught and convicted in relation to kidnapping two boys. Perhaps there are others other offenders who have done this and have gotten away with it. Um, so. So it, that does introduce you know, the possibility that, that it, it may not have been him as well. Right. Were, were there any signs of struggle by where the bike was found? Not, not that the police have, have released any information about. No, it was, was basically um, Patrick's bike was concealed in an area behind the petrol station that was used for, for storing bins. And the petrol station was actually the, the last sort of confirmed sighting of the boys. Um, so they were seen at the petrol station um, just after midnight um, and the assistant there gave them a packet of biscuits and, and watched them walk off together. And that's that's the last sort of known sighting of them. Right. So w- how his bike ended up at the petrol station is it's just down to speculation. I mean, did he leave it there to collect it at some later point? But you think, well, this was a brand new bike that he'd had for Christmas. So was he really going to leave it? at the back of the petrol station not sure yeah it's interesting i I heard you on your podcast talk about how patty told his family that he was going to david's house and david told his family he was going to patty's house and that's such a typical excuse for a teenager or a young person i remember doing that myself at, at a certain age probably around around there so you can see why some people would have thought they were runaways and then in addition to smoking cigarettes and and from a a neighborhood that that you know might be slightly of a lower stature um but when they found the bike it just made no sense that that theory is completely blown out because if he was running away or these kids were running away why would they leave a bike that could help them get further away faster exactly yeah and it's it's looking at all of these these things that kind of make their way into to the narrative isn't it um we, we've got this idea right from the beginning that they're runaways because the the media have said that they're runaways um and often will interpret their their actions in in a way that that fits with that um 
but but like you say I mean I've I said exactly the same thing to to my parents when I was around about this age and just because they kind of created that sort of alibi for each other doesn't mean that they were going to run away it it probably just means that they were doing something that that their parents might disapprove of or wouldn't be happy about them doing and they were just creating some some space for themselves I I find it interesting as reading an article about it after listening to your episode that they described uh David, and hopefully I'm not wrong in this, they describe David as a keen boxer. Yes, yeah, and there's some footage that um, the family released of him uh, back in December of him um, in in a boxing ring, you know, having like a a kind of a a children's type kind of fight event. Um, So so all of these, these things do create that idea that they're older than than they were and when you see the footage of it it's clear clear that this is this is an event for for children it's it's something that that is very much pitched at at that level but without that footage when you only have the words to read you've got images of this kind of buff sort of muscular um you know lad in his his early teens um which really wasn't um, what he looked like at all he was quite small he was quite kind of skinny um, so so often words will paint a particular picture for us and it's only when we act, we see real images that we we actually start to make sense of, of what was going on so this is kind of bringing to mind the the ATM footage that, that everybody is always talking about around the Maura Murray case and and we've created a picture in our minds of what that looks like and I think we'll probably find, yeah, if that is ever released, that the reality is is quite a lot different. Well put, because there's a period of time where I actually thought I saw it just because I had that image in my mind for so long. And when I found out that that image isn't out there, I was searching for it. This is a true story. I was looking for the picture because I actually thought that I had seen it before because I just read it and, and thought about it so long. And, you know, you've seen other pictures of other uh CCTV footage of, of missing people. So it kind of all blends together in your head. But yeah, well, well put. Yeah, everything does kind of merge together, doesn't it? Because um, you've yep. got so many typical images that we come across in cases of, of homicides and missing people. And often, unless you've been sort of on the ground yourself and visited a, a site where something's happened, your your impressions of it are, are wholly inaccurate. And I'm not even sure why they had to say that about the boxing thing. To get back to that real quick, I mean, he's 13 years old. He's not, he's certainly, there's no reason to say that he was a, a keen boxer as if he's going to box his way out of any tough situation. Oh, Tim's raising his finger. I know why, because they, they do it on, on everyone. That, that's why they said that Brianna is an expert in martial arts. And w- when people say Mora is a runner, it's because they want, or the they're putting it out there that this person could have gotten away from someone if they were to be in a, in a, a kidnapping attempt. Exactly. They're, they're painting a picture, not just of what somebody does, but of what that implies about their character. And then that makes us think of them in a particular way. It makes us discount particular um, particular theories, particular possibilities. And, and we've really got to be so kind of careful. We've got to keep stepping back all the time and going, actually, what does this mean? And, and how accurate is this? And who has said this? And why have they said it? Um, whose who's interest is it to say this kind of thing about this person? So we've got to kind of keep stepping back and asking those kind of critical sort of criminological questions all the time. Yeah, it also profiles the would-be perpetrator 
on a really, really subtle level. When you say that this person's a keen boxer and you say Mora was a uh, an expert runner and Brianna had black belts in martial arts, it has subconsciously made you believe that the perpetrator is of a greater power, is a greater runner, is a greater martial arts expert and a and a greater boxer. So now you have a you have a you have a real demon out there. Exactly. And it creates um, a, an idea about the, the victim's degree of, of vulnerability as well. So if you've got an idea of, of somebody who's a boxer, someone who's a runner, somebody who's physically fit, well, that doesn't mean that they're, they're physically fit and on top form all of the time. Um, I mean, I'm a keen runner and I, I put lots of miles in. But I think, you know, if somebody jumped out at me, I probably wouldn't be able to look after myself very well, you know, especially if I had my headphones in and that kind of thing. Because um, so much of, of crime is is situational. It's about what's going on in that moment at that particular time. And, and often all of those background factors that we attach so much significance to really aren't aren't significant in that moment. Yeah, and it says a lot about you, I think, as the reader um, or consumer of of that story because you hear this woman was a runner and now she's gone. Some people think, oh, well, that means she ran away and no one could have caught her. And like you said, Lance, that or that means some people think, oh, well, that 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 means someone really evil took her. You know, it's it is pretty interesting. It certainly is. And and when we're trying to make sense of crime, we're, we're sort of grasping at all of the information that, that is out there. And we have to be really careful and think, well, where has that information come from? How accurate is it? And, and be really kind of scrupulous about some of our sources. Liz, I know that you and David went down to the Chelmsley Wood neighborhood. What did you learn in that neighborhood from talking to the people uh, who were around when the boys went missing? Well, the the main thing that that we learned was that that people haven't forgotten them in that area. And although that is it's a case that is twenty years old, it was still very much right at the surface for for a lot of people. And we spent some time in the area where the petrol station was. I mean, it's no longer a petrol station. It's now a Kentucky Fried Chicken. And there's a bus interchange um, where where people catch the bus quite near to to that area. And we're just speaking to to local people, some of whom have have lived there their entire lives. And and they really did feel uh, a sense that that these boys had been forgotten, that people had made assumptions about them. And you could see people's kind of emotions kind of brimming up to the surface people were becoming quite um quite kind of upset um but but pleased at the same time that that we were taking an interest in, that we were asking questions and and that we were were drawing attention to it right so even though what seems to be the uh, the, the the media community law enforcement uh all of the all the all the peripheral the bubble around the case uh that's cooled off, right? That that's the that has cooled off. But you're, you're talking the community that these two boys came from. That's still pretty hot. Yeah, absolutely. Because the the team of detectives investigating the case are different now. The journalists writing about the case are different as well. But the people who really were affected by this disappearance are still there, and they're still living with it every every single day. Just a random question: Is there some case out there that? that if you had the opportunity to to drop your day job and 
really dig deep into. Have you uh, have you have you had any uh, time to consider uh, the the scenario like that? <laughs> yeah, drop. <laughs> yeah, the, the, there is one case actually um, that I've been interested in for for years, um, and it's a case that that happened in Australia back in two thousand and one. And there were two British tourists, um, Peter Falconio and Joanne Lees, and they were on a working holiday in Australia. Um, they, they were doing a bit of travelling around. They'd spent some time in Sydney and they were exploring the, the Northern Territory and, and they, they'd bought a, a Volkswagen Combi van to, to go exploring in. And, and they became the, the victims of, of a crime Um Essentially, they were they were driving along one night um, in the dark and they were, were flagged down by uh, another vehicle that, that kind of came up and, and drove level with them and indicated that there was something wrong with the, the exhaust of, of their van. And they pulled over. And according to Joanne Lee's account, um, that the person essentially shot Peter Falconio and, and tried to, to kidnap her. She managed to get away by, by hiding in, in the bush, essentially. Um, and Peter Falconio's body has never been found, um, but a man has been convicted of his murder, and that man is called Bradley Murdoch. Um, but it's it's one of those cases where it's it's solved, somebody is convicted of it, but but people are still so kind of fascinated by it. There are so many unanswered questions. Um, so so I'd really like to to look um, not not so much at the case itself, but about people's sense making around it. So a lot of people in, in the aftermath of Peter's disappearance started pointing the finger at Joanne, saying, you've had something to do with this because you're not behaving in the way that we think a victim should behave. Um, you're not kind of crying in front of the camera and, and that kind of thing. And I'd really like to go back and, and have a, a detailed look at, at what happened in that case. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. Anytime you want to head down to Australia and look into it and have a couple other podcasters join you, you know, just as... Uh... <laughs> Just, just for you, know, you can bounce ideas around uh, with. Yeah, uh, that that would be know. a good working holiday, definitely. <laughs> right, it's definitely work. Actually, actually, there's no way I want to go to whatever area they were in in Australia. <laughs> Seen too yeah, many the, movies. The place that they uh, they disappeared from was was the, the Northern Territory, and it was on a quite a remote road. And and apparently, this case was the inspiration for uh, a couple of movies called Wolf Creek which are really creepy and, and horrible and uh, and quite graphic. That's, um, that's yeah, I, uh, when you were explaining it, I actually just chatted Tim. I said, is this the plot of Wolf Creek? And I nodded because yeah, I knew it was, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, inspired by a real case. Yeah. Here's here's a tip. Don't, you're in a remote area. Don't pull over, ever. Or <laughs> if you're in a remote area, don't get stuck in the snow. Right, right. Bring rope. Yeah, because that would be a really bad idea. Yeah, <laughs> really exactly. dumb. That would be a really stupid idea. <laughs> so, uh, Liz, I just have a couple more questions, just about criminology and you in general. Um, what what does what does criminology help teach us about us and about the world around us? Um, I think it it helps us kind of uh, take a step back from all of those those myths and stereotypes and prejudices that we have about victims and about offenders and about crime and actually put things in context and and think why do we believe that why do we treat certain people in a certain way um how come we have more sympathy for for some rather than others 
and it it kind of it helps us, us make sense of of crime and and society's response to it and and it and it often raises some really thorny questions as well uh, and i've found this um especially looking at cases of people who've committed really serious crimes and there's a, a prison in in england that that we do quite a lot of work with um at our university and that prison uh houses some offenders who've committed some really serious horrendous offenses um but it's a place where they they have psychotherapy it's a place where they they choose to go because they want to change their behavior and when you listen to some of these men's stories they've had some really horrendous upbringings um so so you could say that before they were offenders they were victims so it's this idea of you can be an offender and a victim at the same time. And, and criminology does kind of throw up a lot of these really difficult questions. So we, we kind of go away with more questions than, than answers. I personally learned so much when we had you on and just, you know, a thanks for that. And I think what, what you guys do is is fantastic as well, because for so many years we, we've had um, kind of true crime documentaries and, and they've covered a case in an hour or they've, they've taken three cases and, and zipped through them in an hour and we've only just kind of touched the surface. But in kind of looking in, in a lot of detail at talking to a lot of people who are affected by particular cases, I think you brought to light many, many issues that we never even got to see before. Um, and I think that's a really kind of valuable contribution for, for audiences of, of true crime because I think I think generally we all feel more knowledgeable now uh, about especially the Maura Murray case and and the Brianna Maitland case too. Well, thank you very much. Cool. Yeah. yeah. And uh, just like Lance said, listening to this episode, uh, I just talking to you, I feel smarter. So listening to your <laughs> podcast is a way where you can just feel smarter once a month. And we've got some really great criminologists who are kind of up and coming there. They're people who are, have just finished their PhDs. They're just starting out in academia and they're doing some absolutely fantastic research. And it's, it's a really good way, I think, for, for me of kind of showing them off. So um, many of the people on the podcast are my PhD students or they're, they're people who, who I've kind of mentored and encouraged along in, in their careers. So, so I hope it's going to be a really good platform for them as well. Excellent. That's a that's excellent. That's a really good uh, utilization of the students, and I'm sure it gets them excited to uh, get their uh, voice out there and, and learn more uh, during the discussion. Yeah, they absolutely hate listening to the sound of their own voices when they play it back. But once they've got used to that, they're really keen to do more. <laughs> yeah, it, that is the worst part of doing this, I think. Yeah, listening to Tim's voice. <laughs> <laughs> person goes missing, their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief. Bruce Maitland started the 501c3 nonprofit organization Private Investigations for the Missing because he knows this feeling all too well. When Bruce's daughter Brianna disappeared in March 2004, 
he was surrounded by licensed private investigators dedicated to finding her. Now his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, desperate for answers but without the financial means. Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation, and keep up with our blog, visit us at investigationsforthemissing.org and follow us at PI for the Missing on Twitter and Facebook and Investigations for the Missing on Instagram. Because forever is too long to wait.